This episode of The Explainer is supported by daft.ie. Are you buying or selling a home? If it's for sale, it's on daft.ie, Ireland's number one property website. Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, what are the main issues facing Joe Biden as he aims for re-election? Well, we're not into 2024 yet, but it's starting to look pretty likely that the US presidential elections next year will see a Biden-Trump rerun. While many of us would prefer to hide under the covers at the prospect of this, the US has found itself caught in this particular fever dream once again. Now, Donald Trump finds himself embroiled in several legal challenges, some of which could prove to be his undoing, but all of which he will hope to kick down the road until after the election. Biden, meanwhile, is facing increasing criticism over his age and capacity to endure another race, let alone another four years as President of the United States. Now, around both of these men is a swirling, heated battle between the grand old party and the Democrats as they duke it out for the White House. So is it a done deal that these two older white men will once again run the race or are there any potential curveballs along the way? To have a look at all of this today, I'm joined by Larry Donnelly, who's a lawyer from Boston, a law lecturer at the University of Galway and a political columnist here with us at The Journal. Larry, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Laura. So, Larry, first of all, can I ask, what stage are the primaries at in the US now? Are they locked in at all yet? Yeah, at last, the, the primaries are uh, set in. Now, there's been a little bit of change, or I su- should say a, su- a substantial bit of change on the Democratic side in that uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, which listeners will know uh, are always the big early states that we hear so much about and so much from. Well, Iowa has moved uh, after a, a bit of a debacle in 2020 in terms of how its caucus was run. Uh, on the Democratic side, that has moved to Super Tuesday, the 5th of March. And uh, the New Hampshire primary, because under New Hampshire state law, it must come first. It is scheduled and being held on January 23rd. But President Biden's name will not actually appear on the ballot. Uh, His allies there uh, are mounting a write-in campaign on his behalf. But his name will not actually appear on a primary ballot uh, until February 3rd uh, in South Carolina. And that's due to a change the Democrats instituted, largely because their grassroots felt that uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, two of the whitest states in the nation, uh, weren't truly representative of the electorate and held too much sway uh, in the nomination process. So they've changed things. On the Republican side, uh, it is the status quo. Just as always, Iowa and New Hampshire will be the first states. And for the Republicans then, Larry, does anyone have the edge over Trump at all? It really just looks like there isn't anyone else in the race. No, I mean, if you look at the opinion polling, Trump is way, way, way out in front. Uh, that having been said, the field has shrunk kind of dramatically. We had about eight or nine aspirants. Uh, a number of them have withdrawn from the race. Uh, and at this stage, um, it looks like the, the two strongest uh, challenges are going to be uh, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. Uh, on that front, uh, Ron DeSantis got a pretty big blow when the very influential and very rich uh, Koch brothers uh, threw their support to Nikki Haley. Uh, and indeed, uh, a lot of the anti-Trump or anyone but Trump uh, uh, support out there seems to be coalescing uh, around uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, Ron DeSantis remains strong in Iowa, where he has some high-profile endorsements. Uh, but uh, you know, realistically speaking, at this stage, I don't think DeSantis has any path. Uh, I think that if 
Trump, and that's a very big if, if Trump were to be totally ensnared uh, by legal trouble so that he couldn't continue or that something unforeseen happened, uh, I do believe that Nikki Haley would be uh, the one that Republicans gravitate towards and ultimately nominate. But I would view that uh, at this stage as still a very remote possibility. Well, from what you say then, Larry, it does look like some of the smart money from the GOP party is going to Haley. So that's an indication that Trump is still a bit of a headache for some of them. Oh, no question about it. I mean, I, I think that uh, what the, the, the Koch brothers who, who, you know, are in this for the good of their own health, uh, they uh, they recognize that in a one-on-one matchup, and I think it, virtually everyone agrees with this, uh, of Nikki Haley, who it should be said uh, is a young woman, a woman of color, of Indian descent, uh, the former governor of South Carolina. She was Donald Trump's uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. She has a great CV. She has a good backstory. Uh, she's a vibrant individual. Uh, I think a lot of Republicans say, get her on a debate stage with Joe Biden and it's game over. Uh, And I think that's a a lot of Republicans, even those who support Trump, deep down, they know that to be the case. uh, And that's why people have gone to her side. That having been said, uh, Donald Trump still has that very hardcore base uh, of support, uh, which will not leave his side no matter what. Uh, and contrary to what the never Trump Republicans say, uh, they're actually relatively small in size. Donald Trump still among Republicans, when you see the polling, uh, he's overwhelmingly still uh, a popular person. Um, and that, I suppose, accounts for why he's so far ahead. So for switching to Biden then and looking at the Democrats, Larry, we had Biden this week saying that if Trump runs, then he has to run. So he's showing no sign of stepping aside on that front. But who are the other candidates on the Democratic side? Are there any serious contenders? Well, at this stage, with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. having withdrawn from the Democratic process and declared that he's going to run as an independent, uh, we can take him, uh, put him to the one side for a moment. Uh, we're left then with a woman named Marianne Williamson, uh, who's kind of an interesting person, but uh, really has absolutely no chance of winning. She's polling in the low single digits. Then we have someone who, uh, Dean Phillips, a congressman from Minnesota, uh, who decided to get in. Uh, He's long been saying that Biden should step aside for a new generation. He decided to get in at a very, very late stage, uh, so late that, in fact, he's missed filing deadlines for some states. Uh, Also, we're we're hearing that, for instance, the state of Florida mightn't even have a primary. Uh, So Dean Phillips is in the race. Uh, His real thing is, look, I'm younger than Joe Biden. He's voted with Joe Biden in in the Biden administration almost 100% of the time. He's indistinguishable ideologically, uh, but he's putting himself out there as a younger candidate. And he's pinning his hopes on New Hampshire, whereas, as as I said, uh, Joe Biden will not be on the ballot. Uh, But if his name is on the ballot and Joe Biden's isn't, and Joe Biden still wins that New Hampshire primary pretty convincingly, uh, I think that puts paid uh, to any chance Dean Phillips uh, has. So uh, again, uh, sort of as with the Republicans, uh, barring something unforeseeable, uh, it's likely that Joe Biden uh, will be the nominee for the Democratic Party. Uh, and again, there's a substantial amount of disquiet about that. And how is Biden doing in the polls then? Well, in a word, I mean, against his Democratic challenges in the primary, I mean, he's, you know, he's looks pretty good. He looks pretty strong. And that is despite the fact that uh, the majority of Democrats wish he weren't seeking uh, a second term. Uh, you mentioned a minute ago that Biden uh, made some comments recently in, in Boston uh, to the effect that, uh, you know, look, if Trump weren't running, I wouldn't be running. Um, and that's, you know, what he's saying there is, uh, I think it's a tacit acknowledgement that uh, 
some people have doubts about his uh, age and capacity. But on the other hand, what he's trying to hammer home is I'm doing this because I'm the only person who actually beat Trump and I'm still the only person uh, who can beat Trump. Now, that mantra has some appeal based on precedent. But if, again, you're to look at the polling data, the polling data suggests that any generic Democrat, you put the, a Democrat uh, up against Donald Trump, uh, and that Democrat wins and, and wins in the key battleground states. So uh, that appeal to me uh, is somewhat hollow. But look, that's what Biden is going to stress from now uh, until November, as well as a message of, uh, you know, as he says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And the alternative is the unpalatable Donald Trump. And the thing, Larry, is I suppose we don't want to fall into the ages trap here, do we? But Biden's age and capacity, it is a bigger factor this time around. I think 10 years ago, there'd be no question that Biden could get through the race and get to the White House again. But there are some issues presenting here. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't want it to fall into the, to the ages trap a, a, at all. Uh, you know, there certainly are. This, what I would say is this. There are different 81s. There are different people uh, at age 81. There are young people at 80, 81 who are still young, vibrant, capable, everything. Uh, and there are people at 81 who aren't. And I, I, I'm afraid it's palpably obvious uh, that there are issues and people can see what they see with respect to Joe Biden. And the American people, you know, look, the opinion polling is overwhelmingly on the side that he is, in fact, uh, too old to be to serve uh, another term as president of the United States. And we see this, you know, people who have a lot of respect for Joe Biden, who have a lot of time for him, uh, you know, are saying both behind closed doors and now publicly people like David Axelrod, uh, who was Barack Obama's chief advisor, that uh, this is a mountain too tall to climb, that Joe Biden should have stepped aside for a new generation. But the key words there are should have. It's too late at this stage. Biden was effect effectively boxed off the field. And again, barring something unforeseen, he's going to be the nominee. But we've all witnessed these US presidential races. They are grueling, grueling. So that's got to be a huge mountain for him to climb this year. Yeah, and, and you know, not many people are saying this, but, I, but I, I'm saying it. Uh, this campaign, uh, in this campaign, Joe Biden is going to be dependent upon surrogates to an extent that we have never seen before uh, in American politics. He is going to be dependent upon uh, dem popular Democrats in certain geographic areas of the United States to go out there and campaign and make, and make the case on his behalf because he simply is not able uh, to travel around 50 states 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, that is beyond him. And I think even his, his close advisors would admit that privately. Biden is going to be dependent to a great extent on others uh, to make the case for him. Now, it shouldn't be lost in any of us, of course, that Trump is not a young man either. And that is a factor, although you'd wonder why it isn't a factor so much around Trump as it is around Biden. It's really fascinating, Laura. He is no spring chicken, to put it mildly. And certainly, you know, he's had his own uh, recent events where people can say, whoa, that was a senior moment. Yet, if you look at the, the opinion polling, even among the people who don't like Donald Trump, they don't perceive him to be too old or have doubts uh, about his physical and mental capacity, uh, which is quite extraordinary. And I think it is down to uh, the fact that this guy just seems to have, uh, at one level at least, boundless energy and he's able to keep going and going and going. Um, you know, so that doesn't seem to factor in, although the reality is if you look at the tables and everything else, uh, you know, to, 
Trump's advanced age uh, is a risk, uh, just as Biden's advanced age is a risk. Maybe some cynics would say that's because Trump is Trump's shtick is his bluster. He doesn't drill into policy so much when he's making speeches, so he doesn't have to be on the ball so much. Absolutely. And, and, you know, again, um, Trump, I think, feeds off adrenaline. And and let's face it, uh, you know, Joe Biden cannot get 30,000 people into an arena chanting his name, uh, applauding his every thought, treating him as if he's a god. Trump, for lack of a better way of putting it, gets off on that. And that gives him huge energy. Now, Larry, what are the other domestic factors then impacting on how Biden might be polling at the moment? We know what's going on internationally and we'll touch on that shortly, but domestically, how are things looking? Yeah, the, the real the real issue, it's not altogether different from uh, here in the sense that uh, cost of living is a huge factor for very many Americans. Uh, indeed, uh, I've been asked a number of times about uh, shrinkage in African-American support for uh, Joe Biden. And I, I say to people, you know, the African-Americans are Americans and these issues affect them just as any, everyone else. And when you are looking into the supermarket and everything seems to have nearly doubled in cost, uh, that's not going to make you uh, happy with the incumbent politician. And it is a truism that incumbent presidents of the United States get way too much credit when things go well and way too much blame when things go poorly. So cost of living is definitely a big issue uh, for a lot of people across the ideological spectrum. Likewise, similar issues that we see here with respect to housing uh, and getting on the property ladder and the difficulties for young people uh, as opposed to generations before them. Uh, Again, these are big, big problems uh, that go well beyond Joe Biden or even the Democrat or the Republican parties. But again, the incumbent president uh, faces a lot of heat uh, on that ground. And then uh, I think when you look at uh, people who tend towards the cultural right, uh, a lot of them, uh, I think, for, uh, on issues like transgenderism and all sorts of things like that, uh, they are opposed to what they perceive as a leftist agenda in the Democratic Party. Uh, they're going to vote on those. And this is the new front uh, on the culture war, which I expect Republicans to seek to exploit, to move away from abortion, which they know uh, is a political loser for them, uh, instead to go to parental rights and education, to go to gender identity and those things. And lastly, uh, again, an animating factor for people on the political right uh, is the southern border. Uh, and I think that that is also going to be uh, a big issue in this election, one that I think Donald Trump uh, will exploit to his advantage. Daft.ie is the preferred site for anyone buying or selling a home in Ireland. Whether you're taking the first steps or planning your next move, make sure you're on daft.ie, the best place to buy or sell your home in Ireland. So a lot of issues internally, as you'd imagine. Now, externally and and around the world, Ukraine is one of the massive factors in US politics and talk recently about funding possibly running dry there. How could this one play out? Yeah, this is an interesting one. And in many ways, we live in a world that's more global than ever. But, you know, but at the same time, there's still geographic realities. And I think that Ukraine is a reality in our lives here in Ireland to a far greater extent than it is in the lives of most Americans. And I say that for a number of reasons. One is just that the United States is an ocean removed from it all. Uh, The other thing is uh, we have lots of Ukrainians living here among us, and we hear about their struggles uh, all the time. In the United States, and I don't think this is out out of any particular malice, but for most Americans, it's kind of moved off the radar screen. It's just not something they think about 
uh, on an on an average day. They're more worried about what's happening at home, what's happening in their daily lives. Uh, and as such, uh, Republicans, you know, who have an idiot, some Republicans who have a certain ideological disposition, which is we don't want to spend any money anywhere else, keep it at home. Um, you know, they're looking at polling saying the American people are more diffident uh, about what's happening in Ukraine, and that's emboldened them. You know, for instance, uh, to hold up. Uh, the the aid package, which I think is badly needed, uh, you know, for Ukraine to hold that up. We saw that Senate Republicans killed it uh, just this week, um, and also, uh, you know, they they that had the consequence of killing uh, aid to Israel. Um, so Ukraine is faded off the radar screen in the United States. Uh, I think there's general goodwill towards Ukraine, but among the ordinary people, they would say that it wouldn't be the highest priority for the U.S., especially uh, in a foreign policy context in which uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict has again uh, came to the fore. Now, if it is a Biden ticket in November, where does Kamala Harris fit into this? I think her vice presidency has been felt to be a little bit underwhelming. Is she a definite for VP candidate this time or could he go elsewhere? Uh, I think he. I think she is a definite for uh, to, to stay on the ticket, I think at many levels it would be too risky for him uh, to remove her. I mentioned a minute ago that they're worried about uh, African-American numbers and indeed especially about African-American turnout. And I think removing the first female black uh, vice president of the United States from the ticket is a strategy that's just way too uh, risky. A couple things about Kamala Harris. At one level, uh, I have a good deal of sympathy for her in the sense that uh, early on, the Biden team recognized that here was this dynamic individual, uh, you know, with lots of talent uh, who had the capacity, if let go, who had the capacity to uh, upstage uh, a president who was, you know, a senior statesman. And as such, uh, my own view is that behind closed doors, they said, well, how do we keep a lid on this? And the decision was taken, well, We'll give her the most thankless task of all, which is, Kamala, you're in charge of the southern border, which nobody can possibly solve. Uh, and, you know, has in part at least uh, led to her approval numbers being even lower uh, than Joe Biden's, which are quite low. Uh, so I, I have a degree of sympathy for in that. The other thing, and this is from talking to contacts uh, in Democratic Party circles and elsewhere, is that Kamala Harris is uh, regrettably one of these politicians who, um, you know, when you first hear about her, when you see her, there's energy and everything else. And then the more people get to know her, uh, the less they like her. And that was manifest in, you know, the last time around when she mounted her own campaign for president. She ran, when she first ran, she raised $40 million in a week. She had 35,000 people in a stadium to, to hear her announcement speech. And two months later, she was gone. So, uh, you know, there are multiple issues there with Kamala, but I think the, the, the real politique of the situation is uh, she will be Joe Biden's running mate. You'd wonder then if that decision may be to give her the poison chalice of the border that you say can never be solved. Is that going to backfire for them? Because when people are thinking about November, they're not thinking about a Harris-Biden ticket so much. They're just thinking about Biden and they're missing that strength there. That's that's a fair point. I, you know, I, I think that that I think that that is uh, true. Uh, I think on the other hand, I think that, again, Democratic strategists might say, let's look back to the last time around uh, and Donald Trump and the places where these elections are decided uh, in you know, the battleground places like rural Pennsylvania, et cetera. And 
you know, sad to say, uh, how popular uh, is a young black liberal woman from California going to be in those places? Don't we want, you know, Uncle Joe uh, to be at the top of the ticket and people to be thinking about him uh, where we need to win rather than her, even if she might excite uh, on the coasts and among liberal enclaves? Uh, Biden is the one uh, who can win uh, where the Electoral College dictates these things are decided. And Larry, you mentioned the concerns about the black voter in the Democratic side of things, but what about Hispanics and Latino voters? There was always a concern that they were wavering too. Yeah, and that this is uh, again another issue uh, that uh, I suppose transcends uh, the Biden uh, presidency and, and is a, a big a big problem for Democrats. Uh, they're caught betwixt and between, um, you know, the, with the Latino constituency. Uh, the polling numbers again for Trump, he seems to be uh, on a, an exorable rise uh, with uh, Latino voters who are you know the the fastest growing uh, you know segment uh, of the electorate who. who going to weigh, weigh you know, considerable influence uh, in this election and in other elections. Um, and Democrats, uh, regrettably, they overlooked them. They just thought they would be just like African-Americans and vote just as they did. Um, they overlooked the fact that uh, there are certain factors at play, uh, w- you know, which lead Latino Americans to look at the Democratic Party platform and say, wait a second, uh, that doesn't necessarily represent uh, how I see things. Uh, and Republicans have uh, pivoted uh, quite adroitly on that. Uh, and I happen to think that uh, if Republicans' messaging on immigration were a little bit different, a little bit more subtle uh, in some instances, uh, that I think you could see almost a situation where uh, in time uh, a majority of Latinos gravitate to the Republican Party. Now, looking at Trump then, Larry, what's his situation? He's in some serious legal hot water. It's not holding him back. What's he focusing on in his campaign so far? Yeah, good question. I, you know, trying to get inside Donald Trump's mind at any one day is is very tough. I, I just don't know if Donald Trump um, is somebody who has kind of a, a long term strategy. I think he watches television incessantly, uh, and I, it's almost wherever the mood takes him uh, on any particular day. Uh, I think obviously what he wants to do is put the Republican primary to bed uh, as quickly as possible, because again, he's going to be facing down the barrel of uh, all of these lawsuits and pieces of litigation he's going to have to deal with, which are going to be a real problem for him. Uh, On the other hand, and here's where, uh, you know, I hope I'm not putting myself too far out on a limb here. We have all these trial dates that are set in stone uh, over the course of the next year. Uh, Donald Trump is an experienced litigant, albeit usually in a civil context, not a criminal context. That having been said, Defendants have rights, and among those are to file motions. And if you if you lose a motion, uh, one of the things you can do is a- appeal to an appellate court for a decision on the motions. Uh, so to me, uh, some of these trial dates uh, are notional. Uh, it, despite what the judges have said, we're going to run this on a very tight time scale. And then, of course, there is the reality that if there is a finding unfavorable, let's say he's convicted on any of these federal or state charges, Donald Trump retains rights of appeal, which I'm sure uh, he will use to the fullest. So in terms of getting a resolution uh, on any of these things, uh, look, I, I, I would guess later rather than sooner. Now, how that all factors into the public mind in the context of a presidential race, uh, that's anybody's guess, as is the fact that the judicial system and the political system are on an unprecedented collision course in the United States. And Larry, if we take that to another conclusion where we are looking at President Trump in the next 18 months, what happens then if, if this knocks on his door at that point? 
Yeah, well, I mean, look, you know, with respect to the federal, you know, again, I hate to use this word unprecedented over again, but but if if this does happen with respect to the federal charges, uh, he certainly can pardon himself of any convictions. Uh, I think most legal scholars would say that Um, in terms of the state charge in Georgia, which is, you know, potentially very dangerous for him. uh, Yes, I mean, he could well be convicted. He could well be sentenced uh, to prison. And, um, you know, I I can't imagine this vista coming to pass. But it could be the case that he's president from prison. I mean, there's nothing specifically to say that that cannot happen. Uh, I hope and pray uh, that it doesn't happen for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, But, you know, it could happen. Anyone who says it can't, I I think, is misreading the law. Yeah, it seems unthinkable. But based on everything that's happened in US politics in the last decade, anything is possible. Um, Now, Larry, we've touched on many of the big policy issues, abortion, the culture wars, Ukraine, another big, big issue right now that we can't escape is Israel. How is Trump faring on that front, firstly? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's in, you know, let's not forget again, you know, what I said a minute ago about Donald Trump being erratic sometimes. Let's not forget when this first happened, he made some really bizarre comments about Hezbollah being, you know, shrewd and, you know, a good fighting force and all this sort of thing, which was quite strange. Uh, since then, I, I, you know, I think he's, you know, put himself pretty firmly on the side uh, of Israel, uh, not just because of, you know, again, uh, powerful interests in in America on that side, but also because the evangelical Christian movement uh, is very strongly on the side of Israel. Uh, How that, you know, and I think that's generally speaking where people would expect uh, the modern Republican Party to be. It's in many ways, it's more complicated for Joe Biden uh, in the sense that uh, Biden himself has been a longtime supporter of Israel. He's been pretty solidly uh, in Israel's corner. Uh, And again, most Jewish Americans would identify with the Democratic Party, uh, you know, as would uh, the traditionally the America Israel Political Action Committee would have identified with the Democratic Party traditionally. Uh, But uh, young people see this differently. Young people aren't as instinctively pro-Israel as older people in the United States. And the extent to which that might dampen enthusiasm for Biden uh, could be a real problem. And as others have said, uh, I would be watching this context. I'd be watching the state of Michigan, which is going to be absolutely vital, which Donald Trump won uh, in 2016. There has a large Arab American population in Michigan, and the polls are showing uh, that Arab Americans are very, very disappointed uh, with Joe Biden uh, and how he's handled things. Now, the realpolitik in the Democratic Party must be that, look, they're not going to vote for uh, Donald Trump and Republicans who they view to be blindly pro-Israel. But any dampening of enthusiasm that might damage turnout uh, could be lethal for Biden uh, in a context which, remember, 2016, Trump won some of these massive states by 8, 10, 12,000 votes. Uh, so that is potentially a big issue for Biden. And maybe this will feed into the US foreign policy approach to what's happening out there, because we've seen Blinken, obviously, Anthony Blinken, US Secretary of State, doing what he can in the region and being seen to do so, but uh, Biden not faring so well on the world stage on this one. No, I mean, I think if there is, and again, uh, you know, it's terrible to talk in in this way uh, uh, in terms of a a horrible, gut-wrenching conflict, but Anthony Blinken certainly has emerged as a major figure uh, in in the wake uh, of all of this and as somebody uh, who is capable. I mean, look, he is, uh, I suppose, hampered in the eyes of the world by the fact that he is representing America's stance, which is greatly out of step with most of the rest of the world. Uh, That having been said, I think he is a capable diplomat. And again, uh, somebody who, if you 
you ask uh, average Americans, uh, there's an awful lot of people who wish Anthony Blinken would be the Democratic nominee for president this time around. I mean, if we were to zoom out, Larry, today, is it looking just increasingly likely that it's Trump versus Biden in 2024? What are the big issues that could change that at this point? Well, I, I, I hate. Yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, for any betting person, yeah, that's the, that's a solid bet. Uh, but what could change that? I think tr- for Trump, the most likely thing is that he is so ensnared by legal difficulty that it becomes impossible to carry on. Uh, on Biden's side, uh, I, I really hate to say this, is some sort of health issue uh, which renders him uh, unable to continue on uh, with his candidacy or uh, a decision that, look, I'm just not able for this. Uh, I don't see either of those as you know happening, but those are, to me, uh, the most likely scenarios in which uh, one or both mightn't be their party's nominee. Finally, Larry, what are the next steps here now for any of us watching from afar so much? Uh, what's the timeline? What's coming next? Well, as, as I say, I mean, we, we had the, the last uh, Republican debate this week, which really was uh, a nothing burger. And I have to say, just speaking quickly as an aside, uh, this is deeply depressing for me at another level as a political junkie, a political animal. Uh, we're heading into two primaries, which should be exciting. Uh, and we're getting nothing out of it. We're getting no buzz, at least so far. Uh, but in terms of what to watch out for, uh, you know, obviously uh, on the Republican side, uh, you know, the early tests in Iowa uh, and in New Hampshire, uh, where in Iowa, you know, both Haley and DeSantis are there, the, you know, it, you know, trailing Trump significantly. Uh, and then in New Hampshire, where Haley is emerging, uh, how much support do they get? Uh, is it a case where Donald Trump gets more than 50 percent or even 60 percent? Uh, in either of those states. If he does, I think the thing is over. If not, uh, if Haley emerges in particular, uh, then we could see an interesting contest. I still think it'll be tough to, to catch uh, Trump based on the way uh, delegates are awarded uh, in the Republican Party, which is typically win and take all. That is, you win by one vote, you get all that state's delegates. Uh, so that's what to watch for on the Republican side. Uh, on the Democratic side, uh, look, this guy, Dean Phillips, see what he does. If Biden beats him as a write-in candidate in New Hampshire, I think that's the end of Dean Phillips. Uh, but uh, I think the longer-term issue on both sides is going to be uh, the role that third-party candidates might play uh, in this election because uh, if it is Trump and Biden, uh, again, the vast majority of the American people don't want that. So the role that a multitude, potentially, uh, of third-party candidates could play is going to be fascinating. Look, Larry, thanks so much for putting a shape on all of this for us today. And we look forward to your column this weekend and we'll see what comes of it. Thanks a million. Thanks a million, Lar. This episode of The Explainer was supported by Daft.ie. With the largest number of properties for sale in Ireland and being the number one preferred site among buyers and sellers, Daft.ie is the best place to buy or sell your home. Thanks again to Larry Donnelly for joining us today. You've been listening to The Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan and executive producer Sinead O'Carroll. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.